Welcome to part two of this week's podcast. You know, whenever the Lord talks about, uh, like verse 45, I will avenge the divine enemy in hundredfold upon his children, upon his children's children, of all them that hate me into the third or fourth generation. Some people might step back and say, well, no, wait a sec. We're, we're told that we're responsible for our own sins and not for you know, the sins of our parents. But as I, I pondered on that, I thought, is it just that natural consequence of if I'm a, a bitter, angry person and I that's what I teach my children, that's the lifestyle that they will grow up with. And unless they choose to be a transition figure or a break with and to, to step away from that, a mission companion that that is in that category and she chose to live a better life. But I think you're right. The natural result, the natural result of of this kind of behavior is that it's going to be passed down. To children and and children, I think Elder Holland said, um, uh, can can take something that their parents do that they flirt with and turn it into a full full blown romance. Yeah, that that talk was called a prayer for the children. I love that he said parents shouldn't be surprised if uh, flirting with cynicism, their children turn that into full blown romance. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, great um, statement. Yeah, the idea is that I think you're right. I think that's the natural consequence, Sherilyn, rather than the Lord saying, I'm going to punish the great-grandchildren of these people. Uh, I think he's saying that there's going to be a natural flow down through the family tree unless someone stops it. As we look at section 99, this is about uh, John Murdoch, and this is the same John Murdoch, isn't it, that uh, whose wife gave birth to twins, and then his wife uh, died in giving them birth, and these twins were those that were uh, raised by Joseph and Emma. Yes, and that's a, a common story that we hear. But as you look at John Murdoch's life, it's even more poignant um, because that's just the first wife that he loses. He remarries in, uh, I believe it's 1836, and his wife dies in 1837. He remarries in 1838, and his wife passes away in 1845. And then he, he marries again. Um, and so not only does he lose them, but as... Um, we probably have alluded to on earlier podcasts, one of the twins that Joseph and Emma adopt, the little boy Joseph, he passes away. Um, John Murdoch is given a, a promise, I believe in a blessing, that when he goes up to Zion in 1834 with Zion's camp, that his children will be safe, and that they were, they were healthy. But shortly thereafter, his little girl Phoebe passes away. Um, I believe it's Phoebe. And so he loses a lot of family members um, he's, he's a seeker. He, if you look at his biography, I love the biographies on Joseph Smith papers and making sense. Uh, Steve quotes him as saying the spirit of the Lord rested upon me, witnessing to me of the truth as he read the book of Mormon. Um, he wanted to, to see have the spirit teach him where to find truth. Um, and he, unlike most people of his day, essentially gives his life to full-time preaching. Um, he's willing to just move forward um, and to to give his life to preaching full-time. And so DNC 99 is a mission call. Um, it also, well, let's, let's start looking at some of the verses. It's a mission call, but it also is instructions for him how to balance his responsibilities as a father and as a preacher and minister of the gospel. Um, in verses two to four, I think there's some great insights here of as people hear about the gospel, as we hear about the gospel, as we are presented with revelation, uh, we have two options, right? Receive or reject. And verse two, who receiveth you, receiveth me, and you shall have power to declare my word in the demonstration of my Holy Spirit. Which imagine how comforting that is to, to John Murdoch as he sought the Holy Spirit, you know, for years um, to be promised that you'll have the Holy Spirit with you. And verse three, who so who or excuse me, who receiveth you as a little child receiveth my kingdom and blessed are they, for they shall obtain mercy. 
Um, this revelation, we should note, it's chronologically out of order in the Doctrine and Covenants. It's actually given a year before all these events we're talking about. So we're looking at August 1832. So it's just around uh, section 83, between section 83 and 84 chronologically. And in verse 4, who rejecteth you shall be rejected of my father and his house. And so I love that, that contrast, right? It reminds me to step back and say, okay, am I receiving the Lord's word? Am I rejecting the Lord's word? Am I, you know, being slothful? It makes me think of a little story of three devils applying for a job. And the first little devil says, you know, he goes into the interview and he's like, oh, I will be a good devil because I will tell people none of this gospel stuff is true. None of this Christianity is true. And the second little devil goes in, he says, I'm going to tell people it's half true. And the third little devil goes in and he says, I'm going to tell people it's all true, but it can wait. It's not important. You don't have to do it now. You All the, the gospel change, Christ, that can all wait. It's true, but it can wait. And um, I, I, since I heard that story probably 20 years ago, it stuck with me because it's that concept of, am I receiving or rejecting? And if I'm not acting on it, is that a tacit rejection um, by not moving forward? Well, wow. I like that. I've, I've heard something similar like, uh, I'm well, 2 Nephi 28, I'm no devil, there is none. Uh, so there's, there's no need to repent. There's no heaven. There's no hell, but I've heard it. There's no hurry. Uh, another way you put it, um, it can wait. There's no hurry. A procrastination, uh, plug. (laughs) So I, I saw a bumper sticker that said procrastinate later. I thought that was good. (laughs) That's a good one. (laughs) Um, I just crastinated, right? And then I went pro. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. I've I've gone pro. (laughs) I was an amateur. So uh, how many missions did he fill then? So he fills several missions in the introduction Joseph Papers writes for this. They talk about how all the people that he baptizes on his mission. So Murdoch spends time traveling and baptizing about 70 people in four months in Ohio um, this is shortly following his baptism, I believe. And then in early 1831, he decides to devote himself full-time to the ministry. In June 1831, he's called to go to Missouri preaching by the way. That's shortly after his wife has just died. And then the rest of 1831, the first half of 1832, he's preaching in Michigan Territory, Indiana, Missouri, Ohio. He comes back and then we're in June 1832. He's called to go again. Uh, he finds out his little boy Joseph has died and then instructs him to resume his preaching, this time going to the eastern United States. Um, and But I think it's interesting, right? In verse 6, uh, it says, Now verily I say unto you, it is not expedient that you should go until your children are provided for and sent up kindly into the Bishop of Zion. Uh, I think you mentioned, John, you've been a bishop and Hank, maybe you as well. I don't know if anyone ever sent their children to you to take care of, but <laughs> that's kind of an unusual, <laughs> an unusual charge for the bishop. Um, and I think it's partly right. He's a single dad in that culture. It wasn't so common for a, a man, if his wife passed away, to just raise his children alone. He would either find relatives to help or remarry as soon as possible. And so when John went on his mission in 31, his wife had already passed away. And so he had his three older children, Joseph and Emma have the twins, three older children are staying with other people. But when he comes back from his mission, the people that took care of those three kids demand payment. They're like, okay, I took care of your kid on your mission now. Now you need to pay me back for taking care of your child. And so perhaps because of this, (laughs) um, the Lord tells him, okay, send your children up to Bishop Partridge in Zion. Um, And so he makes arrangements for his children. Um pays a man named uh, Caleb Baldwin to take his three oldest children, who are Oris, John, and Phoebe, to Missouri. And then they live with various church members, uh, Phoebe living with Sidney Gilbert, who has the the store there and is the uncle of Mary Rawlings Leitner and Caroline, who are the ones that saved the pages. Um, and so that's kind of an, a, an interesting 
a side note there that uh, I think is in many ways reassuring that the Lord is telling telling John again, I see you. I see that you're a single father. And let's make sure that your children are taken care of. Let's make sure that you know that they're safe. And then I'm going to call you to go. But take care of your children first. I, I really like that because so, so many times we hear stories about, hey, I'm calling you on a mission. Sorry, you have 12 kids and your wife is sick and they're all sick. Just say, say goodbye and go on a mission. And, uh, you know, things have changed. We don't do it that way. But I, I love that, um, you know, how in, it says in the proclamation to the world on the family that fathers are to provide. And here he's making sure your children are provided for. I like that word there. And so it's not reckless or <laughs> to just go, but but make sure that they're provided for, then go. Mm-hmm. Yes, agreed. And I think it's interesting, his his offer, it says in verse 7, after a few years, if thou desirest of me, thou mayest go up into the goodly land to possess thine inheritance. Otherwise, thou shalt continue proclaiming my gospel until thou be taken. <laughs> you can go to Zion, you can keep preaching. Kind of like what the Lord offers, you know, Peter and John's like, do you want to stay and preach? Do you want to be yeah, taken up? That's, oh. that, that both make good choices. Um, both want to serve the that's Lord. That's a good parallel. Yeah. Yeah. I think if I were to ask for Revelation, John, it might just be verse 8. Continue proclaiming the gospel until you're done, <laughs> until you're yeah. taken, right? Like, this is what I want you to do. Just keep teaching the gospel and, until you die. And that, you know, that that's a that's what we're all supposed to do. We're supposed to be doing the work of salvation and, and uh, gathering Israel until, until we're taken. And I think taken means what, Hank? What does it mean, until you're taken? Yeah, I, I think until the Lord's like, until I bring you home. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yep. When does he go? When does he pass away? Do we know? Uh, he dies in Beaver, Utah in 1871, just before Christmas. So he, he definitely goes west, um, is in the camp of Israel, but yeah, lives, what's that, 40 more years, 39 more years after this revelation. So he's, and he served more missions. He continued to go on missions. He went to Australia. <laughs> um, yeah, lots of oh, different wow. missions. So. Imagine that we're at section 100. What's what's the context yeah. here? We've hit the triple digits, We've hit John. The, yeah. <laughs> we need to have a moment for all the listeners who've listened to every episode and like have a moment of silence for them. Yeah, for, this is the century mark. Yeah, and Sherilyn uh Sher- almost Dr. Sherilyn Farns is with us. This is a this is a blessed moment. I feel honored to be here. <laughs> I am enjoying yeah. visiting with both of you. So thank you. <laughs> It's like when the odometer turns in your car and it's kind of like you want to pull over and take a picture. <laughs> oh, pull over. I thought you were supposed to get a milkshake when it turns to uh, zeros, all zeros, you get a milkshake. That's, that I was like my family. I like your idea better. Oh, uh, I missed I like that rule. I, well, it, it works retroactively too, so I'll, I'll meet you there. <laughs> Go up and make, make for all the ones that you missed your whole life. <laughs> yeah. I like it when uh, in the section heading, uh, something unexpected comes up and all of a sudden they're back in New York. <laughs> you're going, wait, I thought we left New York. So what are they doing back in New York? Yes. So Joseph and Sydney Rigdon are on a mission from October to November, but I have to read you these first few lines. Um, of There's a great app that I love called Scripture Plus from Book of Mormon Central. And Steve Harper wrote a bunch of introductory like contexts. They have um, cross-references. They have you know little articles about it. They tell you who the people are. They show you pictures of where it was. There's videos. Um, and Casey Griffiths also is writing commentaries for him. Those are also great. But I love uh, Steve's opening lines here. He says a verse, or excuse me, he says of section 100, quote, the adulterous apostate Dr. Philastus Hurlbut threatened to wash his hands in Joseph Smith's blood. Besides that, the saints in Missouri were in the midst of being forced from the promised land. 
on the bright side, missionary work around the Great Lakes was thriving. Um, and so you have kind of this contrast of, hey, there's a lot of terrible going on, but around the Great Lakes, kind of the area where Niagara Falls is, Toronto, Buffalo, has been historically this great successful area for church members. Um, and so Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon were requested um, to travel there by some recent converts, uh, which I love this theme of early church history. People hear about the gospel and then either they themselves say, I'm going to go tell my family, or they say, hey, can you send someone on a mission here? I can't go right now, but someone's going in that direction. Would you stop by and see this relative of mine? Um, and so they go travel to um, preach in this area in northwestern Pennsylvania, southwestern New York, and a portion of Upper Canada, which is the part of Canada that's um, just above uh, Lake Ontario, so like Toronto area. Um, and so about a week after they leave, Joseph Smith writes in his diary. Um, he feels you know, called to go on this mission. He says, I feel very well in my mind. The Lord is with us, but have much anxiety about my family. Um, and so that's the kind of the, the background, the setup for section 100 is that they're on a mission, but they're worried about their families. And I love, again, kind of this theme that we keep talking about that the Lord not only says, I see you, but I see your family and I'm taking care of them and they're okay. Um, and I remember, um, had a, a big conflict with someone several years ago. It was, it was a breakup. It was, I was dating this fellow. And I remember after we broke up, um, just praying for comfort for myself, but praying for comfort for him. And I still remember where I was standing on BYU campus when I had the very distinct impression, the Lord saying, I'm aware of him and I'm watching over him as well. And so I, I think it's really comforting, um, to see this revelation that not only does the Lord care about us, but he cares about our family. In verse one, verily thus saith the Lord unto you, my friends, Sidney and Joseph, your families are well. They are in mine hands and I will do with them as seemeth me good for in me, there is all power. Um, and I, I just love that, that reassurance. Um, and then continues to say, okay, and now let's talk about your mission. <laughs> I have many people in this place, the regions round about. An effectual door shall be opened in the regions round about. Lift up your voices. Verse five, speak the thoughts I shall put into your hearts. I love that theme in scripture, right? Speak the thoughts I will put into your hearts. In um, all over the Book of Mormon, the thoughts that are in your hearts, speak those thoughts and you shall not be confounded before men for it shall be given you in the very, and the Doctrine and Covenants too, and it shall be given you in the very hour, yea, in the very moment, what ye shall say, what ye shall say, Kind of like First uh, Nephi, right? Four six. You know, it's led by the Spirit, not knowing beforehand the things which I should do. Um, just move forward, and it's kind of like uh, Ether one forty two, right? The brother of Jared, he gathers all the people, and I just imagine this conversation. The Lord um, says, "Go to this valley which is northward, and there will I meet thee." I believe is the exact phrase. Um, and I imagine the people asking the brother of Jared, "Okay, so we're going to go here. Then where, where are we going to go next?" And he says, well, I don't, I don't know, actually. I just know we need to go this far, and there the Lord's going to meet us, which is referred to back in 98. I can't remember if we mentioned it, but it's talking about, I will give you, in verse 12, he will give unto the faithful line upon line, precept upon precept, I will try you and prove you herewith, that if we do what the Lord asks us to do and we move forward, we get more. Well, I just feel like th we have a lot of missionaries who listen to our podcast, and I can see them really, really having a a moment with section 100, right? They worry about their families. They're worried about, you know, where they are, right? The Lord says, I have caused you to come to this place. Um, I, John's daughter um, was supposed to serve in Tahiti, but she's in Tucson right now. And, and I think the Lord would say, I wanted you in this place. Um, I will speak the thoughts uh, or speak the thoughts I put in your heart uh, so I just think this is a, a wonderful 
missionary section uh, where even missionaries of today can read this and get the same comfort that Joseph and Sidney got. Yeah, I think sometimes we want we want to have everything figured out that we're going to do a day or two beforehand, and there's a little bit of a of a test of faith here. I, I'll, I'll tell you in the very moment what you need to say and do, and and uh, that that idea is repeated as Sherilyn said in in other places in Scripture too. But just be where you're supposed to be, and I will treasure up the word. Yeah, you do that, but then the Lord can draw out of you what He needs you to say in the moment. Yeah, I, I don't think this is the Lord saying, don't prepare. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. Don't prepare anything. Yeah. He's saying, treasure treasure up the words, and then I, I'll bring them out when you need them. Mm-hmm. I'll bring all things to your remembrance, right? You've studied it ahead of time, right? And kind of refers to that, um, well, in verse uh, 9, where he says, Sydney will be a spokesman unto this people. And I love that the Lord knows us in our individual gifts. So, Sydney, you're going to be a spokesman. I will ordain you into this calling unto my servant Joseph, and I will give unto him power to be mighty in testimony. I will give unto thee power to be mighty in expounding all scriptures, um, that, you know, he shall be a revelator unto thee. So here you each have roles, your complementary roles, you're helping each other. I need both of you, right? There's a reason that we're sent out on full-time missions and companionships, um, that you can help and build each other up. I like that, because I, I think a companionship can be listening, going, this person's nothing like me. Right? Why are we companions? And the Lord would say, "That's why. <laughs> That's why you you have your different roles, and uh, together you're going to complement one one another." I think that's great. Uh, you could almost see this with any companionship. Yeah, and I think there's this this concept, right? And that's how we build Zion. It's not because it's handed to us, and the Lord drops us in the middle of perfect people and says, "Here's Zion, go for it." But the Lord says, "You're going to build Zion." In verse 16, when he says, I will raise up unto myself a pure people that will serve me in righteousness, right? That kind of harkens back in my mind, at least to DNC 97, just before where we started, 9721, where it says, Zion is the pure in heart. Um, or Moses 718, you know, they dwelt together in righteousness. And then verse 17 reminds me of, well, let me read it. And all that call upon the name of the Lord and keep his commandments shall be saved. Makes me think of DNC 93.1 that says, uh, come to pass those that calleth on my name and several other things and keepeth my commandments shall see my face and know that I am. And that part of building building Zion is creating the environment that we can have a Zion-like people live um, where the Lord can come and dwell. Or like uh, Moses, right before that verse in Moses that talked about what Zion is. It says the Lord came and dwelt with his people and they dwelt in righteousness. And we might walk into a situation, right? This is the early saints did in Jackson County. They walked there and they said, this is Zion, like these rough people. And sometimes people said, oh, this is one's a great land. And do we ever do that? We go into a ward, we go into a mission companionship, we go into a calling, we go into a work situation and we say a family situation. We say, this is Zion. This is what you're giving me to work with. What? This is not what I wanted. But that's how we, that's how we build Zion is by saying, okay, by being humble, which I think one of you referenced earlier and saying, how, what can I do? Not what is everybody else doing, but what can I do to build Zion? And I think in um, DNC 9721, that which I just referenced, the this is Zion, the pure in heart. I think it's interesting because some of the definitions of Zion and this pure people, it says there were no poor among them, right? I believe that's Moses 718. In the 1828 dictionary, the fourth definition of the word poor, yes, I read the 1828 dictionary when I'm trying to understand the scriptures better, <laughs> 
The fourth definition of the word poor is, quote, destitute of value, worth, or importance. And I thought about that in the connection with people. And is part of billing Zion having no poor among us, as in not treating anyone as if they were worthless or destitute of value, right? Which ties in, which I didn't think about to right now. Remember, the worth of souls is great in the sight of God, that to God, we are worth everything. Mr. Corden, that talks about worthiness is not worth um, that regardless of what we're done, we are still worth everything to the Lord. Um, you know, I was thinking about uh, section 100 and that Joseph is worried about his family. And I thought, well, isn't every missionary worried about their right. family? But I can mm-hmm. see Joseph being uh, particularly worried because the threats against him are much greater than the threats against other missionaries. Uh, so I can see him thinking, oh, you know, I'm leaving my family unprotected. And the Lord saying, your families are well it's not just a, hey, your family's doing good to a missionary. It's a, you know, it, they're, they're okay. They're okay. They're safe. Tell us again how long this mission was that Joseph and Sidney were on to Perrysburg, New York. So this one is only from October 5th to November 4th. So just about a month was all. But it was, it was a good mission. Uh, they baptized 12 people after about a week or so. And then two more on October 28th. Um, and then they left and arrived home. And later on, um, one of the people in the branch said that they had 34 members by the end of the year. So it's, uh, I believe he's with Sidney Rigdon on this mission. Um, so just the two of them. But were there other missions that he, that we, some we I could call missions so. that he went on and like proselyting like he did on this one? He makes, he makes what, three trips to Missouri Sherilyn during his time, and then the fourth one where he lives there. Yeah, it's definitely not the norm for Joseph to be called, oh, now go here and preach and go here and preach, um, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah. One thing that I love about this is the Lord doesn't say, why are you worrying about this? Stop worrying about it. Get back to your mission. But he validates his feelings, and he says, you know, he just gives him a comforting answer that it's okay to care about your families. So DNC 101, um, yeah, which I believe has 101 verses. Um, So this is December 1833. And this is kind of bookends what we started with. In DNC 98, we were talking about the persecutions of the saints in Jackson County in July. By December 1833, there's been part two of the the major events of persecution. And the saints have been driven from Jackson County. Um, Tensions escalated. Um, They had agreed to leave the county, but then thought government would intervene and save them. Um, That did not happen. They start petitioning the governor, and they want to try and stay. Um, In fact, in August, Joseph, as we mentioned earlier, counseled the Missouri saints to not sell one foot of land in Jackson County, stating that God would speedily deliver Zion. Um, But tensions escalate, and at the end of November, beginning, or excuse me, at the end of October, beginning of November, the saints are forcibly driven from the county. Um, there's bloodshed. Uh, this is the first time that saints are killed, or excuse me, one saint, and then two of the mob are killed, um, and they drive them. And Joseph Smith receives letters talking about this violence. I wanted to just um, touch on one thing, kind of of the background so the saints um, basically are, you know, living in their settlements. And to kind of paint the picture, we often picture, oh, the saints are in Jackson County. They're all close together. They're spread out across 12 miles. There's no cell phones. There's no, you know, communication. And so a lot of what happens is due to miscommunication um, between the mob and between the saints. 
um, which happens in any war, regardless of the communication styles. But also the saints aren't able to help each other the way they would like because they are scattered. There's no place where they can gather and all be together. Um, so they kind of cluster. And so Edward Partridge's home, it's half mile west of Independence. A lot of times uh, the saints in there would gather there. Um, and then the Whitmer settlement, etc. they would gather. Um, the mobs start coming around. They start ripping off roofs. Um, they start beating some of the men. Um, so the men would gather together thinking the women and children are safe, but then the, the mobs start attacking the homes where the women and children are. And so they realize we've got to just keep everybody um, safe together. One of kind of the, the humorous, not humorous stories from this time period is the saints uh, hear something going on in Independence. They hear word of it. And so some of the group that's at Partridge's home comes into town. They found a, a number of men in the act of stoning the store of Gilbert and Whitney. Um, stores broken. Some of the goods are in the street. I think one account I didn't re recently reread, it says there's like ribbons or cloth all over the street. Um, and they all, all the people attacking the store flee, but one man, man named Richard McCarty, who, quote, was taken and found to be well lined with whiskey. Um, they take him to the magistrate and say, can we get a warrant for his arrest? They refuse to give them one. But jumping ahead <laughs> a few days later, uh, Sidney Gilbert, Isaac Morley, John Corll, and William McClellan were taken for assault and battery. So essentially, they catch the man in the act of robbing the store, and they can't get a warrant for his him to be arrested. Um, but he can get a warrant. <laughs> uh, what uh, Partridge phrases it well. He says, although they could not get a warrant for him for breaking the store, yet he had obtained one for them for catching him at it. Um, so just the oh irony of the judges of saying, yeah, I'm not going to give you a warrant. Oh, sure, you would like one because they caught you? Yes, I will grant you one. Um, oh, I hope Harry Truman, that one of the future judges in independence rolled over in his, I guess he wasn't alive yet, rolled over in the, in the pre-mortal world saying that is wrong. <laughs> that is just, oh, I, I cannot, I, oh, <laughs> that makes me mad. I'll just be quiet. <laughs> no, no, it is. I mean, we, we kind of chuckle because it's so absurd, but imagine the frustration, right? If you're there and it's happening to oh. you and just, yeah, phenomenally. And so what happens a lot is a group of saints will maybe gather together to go protect someone. And then the mob, someone from the mob's like, oh, a group of Mormons are coming to attack us. So they gather people and then they, you know, go at each other when really they're kind of second guessing each other's movements a lot. But it does tragically lead to three people dying. Um, Philo Dibble is also wounded um, pretty severely. He's got a great story. We won't go into it here, um, but he's healed um, and he's, you know, continues to live. Um, these men that are on trial for catching uh, Richard McCartney are in the courthouse when news comes and it's grossly exaggerated. Oh, 20 people have been killed. They've killed Moses Wilson's son. And so the people around the courthouse then think we're going to kill these men right here. We have them, but to protect them, um, the the officials that there put them in the jail to kind of save them. In the middle of the night, uh, they're taken out to go meet with the other saints to have a little council, and they say, "What should we do?" Um, and they agree. They say, "You know, things have gone too far. We're going to agree to leave the county. We'll leave Jackson County. Uh, the north northern boundary of Jackson County is the Missouri River. Let's go north across the river into Clay County." Um, so the men that were in the jail, you know, return back to the jail with the sheriff. Um, but some mob members are waiting for them there and shoot at them. Uh, I, two of them run away. I think it's Morley, yeah, Morley and Coral run away as they're being shot at. Gilbert actually stands his ground, Sidney Gilbert, um, which is very impressive. 
two guns are fired at him. Neither of them actually hit him. One flashes in the pan and then he's knocked down, um, but he's not actually injured. And so he gets back into the jail. And then early the next morning, you know, it's kind of like, okay, we brought you back to jail. Okay, now we're going to we'll release you. Um, and so there's there's just all this confusion and people are scared and they start um they, once they decide to once they decide to leave then there's even confusion among that and there's one party of uh women and children that start fleeing the county um uh, on their own the men are off making arrangements and they just say it's not safe we can't even stay here any longer and they just go and they wander for a few days and there's an account of you know the the um, ground being so rough that the the children's feet are tender and then they're they're bleeding um, from the stubble on the ground. In fact, Partridge, uh, when they're they're camped on the the southern edge of the Missouri River, waiting to go across the Missouri River, um, he says there was a cry of you know husbands looking for their wives and wives looking for their husbands or children needing to be reunited with their families. So in addition to fleeing your home, you're also is my wondering is my family okay? Where where's the rest of my family? Or I'm okay, my immediate family's fine, but are my neighbors okay? She was, you know, maybe she was pregnant. She's about to give birth. Is she okay? What's, what's going on with everybody that I care about? Um, so just a lot of, a lot of really, really hard and really um, poignant things going on. And that, so that's the beginning of November, 1833. Um, I want everybody uh, who is listening, make sure they understand that this isn't being driven from Missouri. Sometimes I, I remember when I was younger, I thought, oh, this is when we were driven from Missouri. That's not going to happen until the winter of 1838 and the winter of 1839. Uh, this is the winter of 1833 and 34 when we're not driven from the state, but from the county. Uh, I think maybe we, we need to clarify for uh, for some who uh, who are going, wait, I, I thought, you know, is this where Emma carries the pages and things like that? No, no, that's not going to happen for another uh, six years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good clarification. Thanks for, thanks for uh, mentioning that. One last thing on the context, I think it's helpful to remember the saints couldn't see the end from the beginning, right? They didn't know it was coming. And so Partridge uh, is writing letters. Other church members are writing letters to Joseph Smith and Kirtland. Hey, this is what's going on. This is what's happening. Partridge says, we are in hopes that we shall be able to return to our houses and lands before a great while. But how this is to be accomplished is all in the dark to us as yet. Um, and Joseph Smith has counseled them to keep their lands in Missouri. So Partridge has this tension of, we just agreed to leave, but it, I think it's going to save lives. You know, on December 5th, 1833, Joseph Smith uh, writes a letter to Partridge. Joseph himself is trying to understand the Lord's will. He's trying to understand why is this happening, right? Joseph is a prophet. He's no less than a prophet, but he's no more than a man. He's not omniscient. He doesn't know why everything's happening. And so on December 5th, he writes to Edward Partridge telling him that if initial reports that church members had surrendered and were evacuating were incorrect, then he says, maintain the ground as long as there is a man left, uh, since it's the place appointed of the Lord for your inheritance. But you can go to Clay County if you're already on your way to Clay County, you like it can be a temporary refuge. It will be no harm to go there. Um, and then uh, in later in December, Joseph Smith receives this revelation that, that I feel gives him some clarity and gives the saints some clarity of, of why is this happening? Not all questions are answered, but but why is this happening? Um, and let's let's jump into this oh, with one final thing. Ira Ames is a church member living in Kirtland, and he goes to Joseph Smith's house in Kirtland with Martin Harris early one December morning and finds Joseph and Oliver Cowdery at breakfast. And apparently, according to Ames, Cowdery greeted the two by saying, good morning, brethren. We have just received news from heaven. And so you get this sense of, mm. yep, this is a revelation. Wow. Um, <laughs> We've just received news from heaven. Mm -hmm. 
That's fantastic. I know. I loved. I read that in the Making Sense book. It's kind of. It's kind of like the newscaster. This just in. Yes. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we just got this from heaven. Pretty matter of fact. So yeah, let's let's jump into this. Um, oh, and as we're doing it, I think one thing also to remember: not only is Joseph Smith concerned, but people's family members. Edward Partridge's brother writes him a letter in October. I've heard crazy reports. Let me know if you're okay. I want to know what's happening. So there's a lot of people that that are concerned. So in DNC 101, um, the Lord helps Joseph Smith and the saints and others understand why why this is happening. And it says, uh, verse one, verily I say unto you concerning your brethren who have been afflicted and persecuted and cast out from the land of their inheritance. I, the Lord, have suffered the affliction to come upon them wherewith they have been afflicted in consequence of their transgressions. So one, okay, they haven't lived up to to the the covenants, to the the instructions that they've been given. Um, and I say that with, which we'll, we'll come back and talk about that, not to criticize because I'm certainly not one to point fingers. It says, verse three, yeah, I will own them and they shall be mine in that day when I shall come to make up my jewels. Verse four, therefore they must needs be chastened and tried, even as Abraham, who was commanded to offer up his only son. For all those who will not endure chastening, but deny me, cannot be sanctified. And verse six, which Elder Christofferson quotes in his Come to Zion talk from a few years ago, he says, Behold, I say unto you, there were jarrings and contentions and envyings and strifes and lustful and covetous desires among them. Therefore, by these things, they polluted their inheritances. So I think we've got a few things going on. We have the Lord saying, you've got some transgressions. So that's a consequence. And I think like more broadly, afflictions come because of our transgressions, um, sometimes because of other people's transgressions. And sometimes because we need to be tested and tried, like Abraham, sometimes because we just live in a fallen world. But Elder Christofferson talked about this, and I, I love the way he put it. He, he compared their society with ours, um, and he says, Rather than judge these early saints too harshly, however, we should look to ourselves to see if we are doing any better. Zion is Zion because of the character, attributes, and faithfulness of her citizens. Much of the work to be done in establishing Zion consists in our individual efforts to become the pure in heart. It says, Zion cannot be built up unless it is by the principles of the law of the celestial kingdom. Otherwise, I cannot receive her unto myself. And then he, he juxtaposes this verse with our day. Elder Christofferson says, the Savior was critical of some of the early saints, not all, but at least some of the early saints for their lustful desires. These were people who lived in a non-television, non-film, non-internet, non-iPod world. In a world now awash in sexualized images and music, are we free from lustful desires and their attendant evils? Far from pushing the limits of modest dress or indulging in the vicarious immorality of pornography, we are to hunger and thirst after righteousness. To come to Zion, it is not enough for you or me to be somewhat less wicked than others. We are to become not only good, but holy men and women. And then he says, recalling Elder Neil A. Maxwell's phrase, let us once and for all establish our residence in Zion and give up the summer cottage in Babylon. So what's the reference of that Elder Christofferson talk again? Yes. So it is from Come to Zion. It's October 2008. Elder Christofferson, he often talks about Zion. That's one of his themes that I love. I love hearing. That's great stuff. I mean, to think about <laughs> their world and what they had and and then you see that list of things in verse eight, and then think about our world. Holy cow. Jarrings, contentions, envying strifes, lustful and covetous desires. I think he just described our culture. Yeah. 2021. Right? Yeah. Yeah. 2021. And this thing, um, and, and notice what the Lord calls them. They'll pollute your life. 
right? Those things will pollute your life. Uh, you'll pollute the blessings that I have for you. Yeah. So I like how you said this, uh, Sherilyn, we can't point fingers at these saints. Um, we don't know, you know, we can't judge anyone, but this does, I think if they were to see our day, they'd say, Ooh, I think section 101 is for you actually. <laughs> <laughs> probably. They probably would. They'd say we had yeah. nothing on you all. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, we, we say that lightheartedly, we were just joking about there, but, but in, in truth, right. I love that the sections in the Doctrine and Covenants and all the scriptures that we can all relate to them in different ways, right? Sometimes we say, oh, well, my ancestors were part of this, this pioneer group where they were in Nauvoo. Maybe you were biologically or, you know, sealed to these family members. But then some people in the world today are refugees and they can relate to the saints in a much different way than I can relate to them because they can say, I know what it's like to be a refugee like President Uchtdorf. Um, some people can say, hey, I'm not a refugee, but I've been subjected to physical violence. I've had someone break into my home. I know what it's like. Um, and so I think all of these ways that we, you know, uh, relate to the early saints are important and they're all equally valid. Some people are persecuted for their religious beliefs. Um, and yet in many ways, um, the Lord has messages in this for each of us, um, including jumping into verse eight and nine. Yeah. So in verse eight, Right? I think in many ways, most or all of us can relate to this. In the day of their peace, they esteemed lightly my counsel, but in the day of their trouble, of necessity, they feel after me. How many of us, when things are going well, we're comfortable? And I even love that phrasing there, they feel after me. It's not just they start to listen to me or they read my words. Those That's part of feeling after him, but it's a, it's a soul-deep hunger, a spiritual yearning. Um, kind of like later on, I believe it's in this section, talks about the soul and caring for the life of the soul, that the soul senses there's something that we need here. I um, I automatically thought of Helaman 12 when, when Mormon gets so frustrated with human beings uh, and he almost throws down his pen. He stops the entire story and he says, oh, you're so foolish. Uh, this is Helaman 12, 4. How foolish, foolish, how vain, how evil, devilish, how quick to do iniquity and how slow to do good are the children of men. He says, um, except the Lord visits the people with death, terror, and, and famine. Terror. yeah. And with all manner of pestilence, they will not remember him. Um, he says, why is it in the very moment that God blesses you, he does all these things, you harden your hearts and forget the Lord your God and trample under their feet. He's saying under our feet, the Holy One. This is because of prosperity. Uh, it's almost a similar thing. As I like the Lord's tone here. He says, I love you. You have a lot of problems, but I love you. <laughs> and Sherilyn, how... I, I think there's going to be some listeners who say, oh, that's why all these bad things are happening to me because I, I need to be chastened. We're not saying that any any trial that someone goes through is because the Lord is trying to, you know, that there's something wrong, right? I think that's an important thing because, it, you know, some things happen, like you said, because we live in a fallen world or uh, because of other people's choices. But there can be difficulties that come. I wonder if the Lord is saying, you you did a pretty impressive job of creating your own difficulties, right? <laughs> I just kind of allowed you, I was kind of hands off and you, you did a lot of this to yourselves um, with your difficulties, you know, with the, with the, with your choices. On the official manuals, right at the top of 154, 
It says, some of our afflictions in life are caused by our own choices. Others are caused by the choices of others. And sometimes no one is to blame. Bad things just happen. Regardless of the cause, adversity can help fulfill divine purposes. And so, yeah, I'm glad you're bringing that up again, because when when we honestly look, we can see, yeah, I probably cause a lot of my own problems. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but we're not saying that's true in every case, right? And I love the the Lord's tone here is, I love you, I haven't forgotten you, and yes, this is going to hurt a little bit. Yeah, I love verse 9. My bowels are filled with compassion towards them. So it's not like, I'm so tired of you people. It's, uh, you know, you're going through all this, but I'm filled with compassion. Yeah, and I love the um, the concept of, jumping back up to verse 5 briefly, all those who will not endure chastening but deny me cannot be sanctified. It made me kind of step back and ask myself, okay, what does it mean to endure chastening? Just kind of grit your teeth and like, okay, I'll get through this. Or is it does it mean without denying Christ? Does it mean accepting Christ? Does it mean following him, taking his name upon me? Like, what does it mean to endure chastening? Um Kind of like, uh, I feel like there's a President Irene talk about enduring well. Uh, I'm not putting my finger on it right now, but um, it's not just enduring to the end, but enduring well. And it's, you know, building, building Zion as we go. There's that verse right in section 121, if thou endure it well. Right. Right. Not just endure it, but <laughs> let it, it's. And in 123, let us cheerfully do all things that lie in our power. You know, I got to be cheerful too. Oh. <laughs> oh, you are. Aren't you the cheerful co-host, right? Wasn't that the he adjective is the from cheerful today? Co-host. <laughs> I know. Hank was just reminding me of that verse when he said that. So. Yeah. Please be cheerful. Would you be you cheerful? You should see him when he's ornery. It's, it's not very fun. <laughs> hey, when I was younger, when I was a teenager, I used to think my mom is a very cheerful person. And I just thought, oh, well, when you become a parent, they just like from heaven, it's just bestowed upon you. You don't have to try to yeah. be cheerful. <laughs> and you know, as you get older, you realize, oh, she actually puts effort into being cheerful. I mean, I think she has a naturally cheery disposition, but uh, he also makes a lot of effort to remain cheerful. Right. <laughs> I think uh, one of the things I was thinking about with DNC 101 is verse 7, when it says, they were slow to hearken unto the voice of the Lord their God. And it made me ask myself, okay, am I slow? And, and what is slow? You know, am I judging these people as slow when perhaps I'm slow? Um, and just kind of, you know, made me, made me question myself. A few cross-references for DNC 101.8 so verse eight, when it talks about they feel after me, it made me think of, I started looking at a, a few other verses, made me think of um, Hosea 5.15, where it says, they seek my face and their affliction, they will seek me early. Or Acts 17.27, that they should seek the Lord if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. And then Alma 32.6, I think this is the, the cross-reference below, their afflictions had truly humbled them and they were in a preparation to hear the word. Um, and so, you know, are we willing to hear, are we open to, and this, uh, maybe it doesn't apply right here, but I was thinking about this when we were talking about something a few minutes earlier of being willing to be chastened. I have a little niece that's 10 and she was joining, deciding which club soccer team to join. And she picked the one with the coach who was going to be harder on her. She said, yeah, I'm going to go with him because I know he's going to push me and therefore I'll get better and I want to get better. And I just love that example. Here's this little 10-year-old and she says, I want to get better and it's going to be harder, but I'm going to get better. I know that's what the Lord asked. That's all he asked, right? I think in one of your earlier ones, you're talking with Steve Harbour about uh, repenting relentlessly, right? We just have to keep trying. We just have to keep trying. And uh, when I did my student teaching eighth grade U.S. history several years ago, 
Um, I taught here in Utah and there was one class I had some difficulty with. It was the end of the day. It was the last class. I finally just told my students, I was like, look, we've, we've got to change something. This is not working. Um, I care about you. There's something I like about every single one of you. And immediately the kid who was by far the worst in the entire class, his hand shut up and he said, Miss Farns, what do you like about me? And I could honestly say, I like that you're trying because I could tell he'd be working on something. He'd start to goof off or get distracted. He'd look up, he'd catch my eye. And it wasn't that sense of, oh, I got caught, but it was like, oh, you know what? You see me and you know, I can do better. I'm going to try a little bit harder to focus. And I just, I love that. And I've thought about that ever since. Um, I like that you're trying that. The Lord says that to us. I like that you're trying. It's okay. You messed up, but you're trying. One thing that I'll, I'll mention that I've heard from Alex, uh, Alex Baugh is that they had not started the temple. The Lord had commanded them to start the temple, and they still hadn't. You know, Joseph's going to start the temple in Kirtland eventually, but uh, that's an important thing the Lord wanted done, and they, he said they, they t- esteemed lightly my counsel. Yeah, I think in previous podcasts, Hank, we've talked about that. The Lord just really is anxious to give them the blessings of the temple. And it makes me think of um, in the Book of Mormon, uh, is it Limhi, where Ammon comes and says, hey, we're here. We have a message of deliverance. Your brethren in Jerusalem are still alive. We're here to help you. And Limhi, what does he say to his people? Okay, let's come to the temple. Meet at the temple tomorrow. You're going to find out how to be delivered. It's still going to be hard. I trust there remaineth an effectual struggle to be made. But meet at the temple and we'll learn how to be delivered. So we have the parable of a nobleman that has a spot of land. He says to his servants, okay, I want you to go here and plant 12 olive trees, set watchmen, build a tower, and then put a watchman on the tower so my olive trees are safe. Um, And then they start building the foundation and they start to say among themselves, verse 47, "Eh, what need hath my Lord of this tower? They consulted for a long time saying among themselves, what need hath my Lord of this tower? Seeing this is a time of peace. Might not this money be given to the exchangers? For there is no need of these things. And then verse 50, right? While they were at variance one with another, they became very slothful, right? Isn't that us? We start to bicker about small things and we get slothful in what we're supposed to do. That particular commandment or bigger commandments says, and they hearken not unto the commandments of their Lord. Of course, we know what happens. The enemy comes by night, breaks down the hedge. Servants of the nobleman arise. They're affrighted in verse 50. They flee. The enemy destroys their works and breaks down the olive trees. And the nobleman says to his vineyard, what is the cause of this great evil? Ought ye not to have done even as I commanded you? And after ye had planted the vineyard and built the hedge round about and set watchmen upon the walls thereof, built the tower also and set a watchman upon the tower and watched for my vineyard and not have fallen asleep lest the enemy should come upon you. Behold, the watchman upon the tower would have seen the enemy when he was yet afar off. And then ye could have made ready and kept the enemy from breaking down the hedge thereof and saved my vineyard from the hands of the destroyer. A few sections later, The Lord identifies Joseph Smith as the servant that he speaks to and then calls upon him to do exactly what verse 55 says, go and gather together the residue of my servants, take all the strength of mine house, which are my warriors, my young men, and they that are of middle age, also among all my servants who are the strength of mine house, save those only who I've appointed to tarry. And then they're going to go to the vineyard and redeem the vineyard. The Lord says, for it is mine, I have bought it with money. That is Zion's camp, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yes, at least that's that's my interpretation. I believe that's the, the general interpretation that, yeah, they're speaking of Zion's camp or what they called at the time, the camp of Israel. I often find things pretty funny. And I think this would be interesting to read this, being someone who was involved going, oh yeah, I, I did do that. I did. <laughs> I did say that. The Lord, the Lord's kind of, let me tell you a story. There once was these people 
does this sound familiar at all? And they said, ah, we don't need to do that. Right. Uh, and there, I think, I think there was this one moment in the new Testament where it says, um, and the Pharisees, uh, what is it? The Pharisees saw that he spake of they them. They perceived yeah. that he spake about them. It's <laughs> like, oh, now you're getting it. <laughs> yeah. He's like, wait, this sounds familiar. Is he, is he, is he talking about, hey, He's wait talking a about <laughs> I always say to my students, there's Bobby the Pharisee over there. I think he's talking about us. Yeah, we know, Bobby. We know. <laughs> um, there's got to be this moment where the saints are reading this letter going, uh-oh, I, that was me, right? In fact, there's a name for that. There, there's. Um, I heard uh, Victor Ludlow talk about entrapment parables. Yeah, an entrapment parable. Where, yeah, it's like Isaiah's. Uh, you know, what more could I have done for my vineyard? I don't know, can't think of a thing. And then it's like, okay, the, you you guys are the ones. Uh, and and what's the other one? Um, Nathan comes Nathan, into David, yep. right? Man Nathan had... and David. The Savior uses entrapment parables. And yeah. I like in verse 52, that the sa- I like that the Lord is using a parable here because it's kind of a, I'm not going to just go right at you. I'm just going to kind of tell this story over here and, and let you see it from my perspective. Um, because in verse 52, why? Why? Um, I think the Lord would say that to us too, you know, when we decide, oh, uh, your way, I'm not going to go your way. He'd say, let me tell you a story about a guy who didn't listen to his boss. And the boss said, why? <laughs> why? Um, I wanted well, the best and I for like, you. I like the 47, 48, it, it, when they're trying to use their own reasoning. Well, I don't really see why he needs this, you know. I, I don't, this is a time of peace. We don't need a tower and... And not seeing that there's a, a greater purpose that they don't know about that the that the nobleman has. Mm-hmm. It would be kind of like people saying, why do we need come follow me? We go to church every Sunday. People can just get enough at church. Why do we need to do ministering, like home teaching, visiting teaching? That's good enough for us. Let's just do that, right? And then looking back post-pandemic or, you know, as we're getting towards the end and things are starting to, to open back up and become more normal, right? I'm so grateful that the prophets and apostles listened to that revelation, didn't say, that's a great idea. Let's do that in five or 10 years, but but we're prepared. <laughs> but yeah, I definitely see myself in this parable. And uh, yeah, have well, done think, like think, think about Think about what is the gospel? Uh, what is the restored gospel as we understand it? Uh, now take away the temple, take away everything we learn in the temple. And you can see why the Lord's so anxious to give them that, because it's hard for me to imagine what is the restored gospel without the temple and what happens there and the promises there. And isn't that the meaning of the tower eventually? Mm-hmm. That's told what you yeah, to build a temple. The Lord doesn't explicitly interpret it, but I, that's the the general understanding. Sure sounds it sounds like it. It makes sense yeah. that it's the temple that he says, you need we need that temple, which I think ties back into what we were talking about at the very beginning of this this episode, uh, ninety eight sixteen, when he says, "Renounce war and proclaim peace, and seek diligently to turn the hearts of the children to their fathers, the hearts of the fathers to the children." That it comes back to proclaim peace, and peace is found as we seal families and make covenants in the temple. So, yeah, thank you both of you for bringing it, tying it back to the temple, which it should be. Um, Sherilyn, it seems to me that in 57, 58, and 59, the Lord gives them a little bit of foreshadowing about Zion's camp not being successful in what they thought they were supposed to do. Because he says, I'm going to enter the land with a remnant, a residue, he says, of mine own house. And the servant says, well, when? 
And the Lord says, when I will. Now go and do what, I, what I've asked you to do. So when they get to Missouri, when Zion can't, Zion's camp get to Missouri, I hate to throw in a spoiler, they actually don't redeem Zion. The Lord, the Lord stops them and says, now I, I, this is as far as I wanted you to come. And it seems that there's a little bit of a foreshadowing there in 56 through, through 60. Mm-hmm. Oh, maybe so. I hadn't thought about it in that sense. Um, definitely in verse 60, yeah. He doesn't promise any specific timetable because there is, like you point out, the people going with the camp of Israel, with Zion's camp, they're ready to fight. They're prepared. And they're saying, we're going here. We're going to we're gonna get it back. The governor's going to help us. And we're going to stay here for a year to help the saints, you know, build Jackson County back up, which, yeah, doesn't happen. Yeah. Um, he said, he just throws out verse 62, after many days, all things were fulfilled, right? Doesn't make a promise there. I I. I think that's important to point out. That's a fun parable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I love that you hit on timing, right? The Lord's timing is often different from our timing. It makes me think of Elder Holland's quote, right? Some blessings come soon, some come late, and some don't come till heaven. But for those who keep the gospel of Jesus Christ, they come. That the Lord, the Lord's ways of doing things can be different than ours, um, but it doesn't mean that he's not going to fulfill all of the promises. Uh, it might not be in the way we think, might not be when we think, but it will be fulfilled. Yeah, and I know many of them are disappointed uh, in how Zion's camp turns out, but the Lord has a different purpose for it. I'm sure we'll talk about that later. For those who might be, wait, what Zion's camp? What the, the, the idea of redeeming Zion? When we think of redeem, we think of the Savior, the Redeemer. But in this case, redeeming Zion meant to go take it back, right? And that's what they expected to do: as Zion's camp, go go fight and take it back. They were going to escort the people back onto their lands. Thank you for clarifying that, because we definitely use it differently in our day. I mean, we talk about Zion yeah. differently. It's not a place, but it's more of the condition of our hearts, a stake of Zion. I'm, I'm going to go redeem my backyard. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's different. <laughs> uh, Cheryl Lynn, section 101 is pretty long. Are there any other verses you'd like to highlight? Yeah, there were a few others that kind of jumped out to me in verses 67 to 68. Um, I know I keep tying it back to Partridge, but just I've studied his life the most. But he says, um, the Lord says in verse 67, therefore a commandment I give unto all the churches to continue to gather, specifically to the places he's appointed. And then 68, nevertheless, as I have said unto you in a former commandment, let not your gathering be in haste nor by flight, but let all things be prepared before you. And that was one of the struggles with Zion. A lot of the saints were so eager to just go to Zion that starting from when the saints first moved there in July of 1831, some saints came when they really shouldn't have been coming. And so, so much so that a year later in summer, June 1832, Partridge writes a letter to the saints and says, okay, just a reminder, (laughs) like, this is how we're supposed to come to Zion. You're supposed to get a recommend from your bishop. You're only supposed to come up if you're, you know, kind of invited and you're, you're welcome to come. We can't support everybody just pouring in, especially without resources. And so I see in this a little bit of a reminder and I can see Partridge going, yes, thank you for reminding them. (laughs) This is how it's supposed to be. (laughs) Do not do what you're not supposed to do. Yeah. The Lord was specific. Don't go unless you've, you know, been called to go, but some just went. They decided they wanted to go. So they just went. Um, And it really, it made things hard for Bishop Partridge. It made things hard for, to to establish Zion, right? Because he, he can't buy the land he needs if he's feeding People who can't feed themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're spending all but this time. What's he going to do, right? What's he going to do when they show up? Just, well, I can't feed you. No, he's going to, uh, that would be so frustrating. I can, uh, to be Bishop Partridge saying, 
And I like that you said that. He's like, yes. <laughs> this is what <laughs> I, we I said mean, I imagine two he years ago. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's what I, I told you to do. Verse 78, where it says, and then every man may act according to the moral agency which I have given unto him, that every man may be accountable for his own sins in the day of judgment, right? They are consecrating property and sharing and helping each other, but you're still responsible for <laughs> your own actions. You're responsible for your own stewardship. And that made me think of um, Elder Christofferson's talk from October 2014, free to act for them, free forever to act for themselves, when he quotes from Henry V and talking about the king coming about the camp and they're debating whose fault is it if the king goes to war and it's not a just war and quoting and saying every subject's duty is the king's but every subject's soul is his own that we're each responsible for our own soul which kind of ties back into um verses 37 and 38 which says care for the soul and for the life of the soul um which we could go off a long time about that what does it mean to care for your soul for the life of your soul um, and then verse 38, what does it mean in patience? You may possess your souls and you shall have eternal life. You know, how does patience tie into possessing your souls? Um, but I think the last, uh, they continue to importune for redress um, in verses 85 to 95. They turn to judges and governors and, and president um, and verse 76 as well. They try and get redress. Um, they don't get a lot, um, but they continue to try. Ugh. That'd be, I just can't imagine the frustration of, of, of this. Um, you know, I, as I, I've taken people back to these places and described these stories and people get so, even today, as you hear the story, you just get so frustrated with, um, with the legal system out in Missouri, uh, that, you know, that someone can be driven off of their own property uh, and sent away and never paid for that property, never have it recovered. It's just, you're driven out of it. And if you set foot back in the County, uh, we're going to, we're going to hurt you, perhaps kill you. Uh, and this is the United States of America. Uh, it's so frustrating and they do get to the president, right? Eventually they get to Martin Van Buren. And yeah, that the, the famous your cause is just, but I can do nothing for you if I were to take up for you, I would lose the vote of Missouri, that famous story. <laughs> I love verses 32 through 36. There's, uh, you know, do you have questions about dinosaurs? Do you have questions about the age of the earth? Do you have questions about uh, how the earth was made? Uh, and the Lord has all of these answers, but he is not often a God of explanations. And so I, I love these these verses. And uh, Hank, you know that uh, a pivotal experience in my life was was going to to speak to the young men and women at Columbine High School after that horrific school shooting and tossing and turning in bed. And what in the world do I say? And do the scriptures really have the answers, or don't they? And I I put together this talk, and and this was Scripture five of five scriptures that will help you get through almost anything. And I put almost because I thought the Savior gets us through everything without an almost, but these scriptures help. And this this was the last one. Um, verse 32, I say unto you, in that day when the Lord shall come, he shall reveal all things. And what do I always love to say when I see the word all, Hank? <laughs> That's a high that a percentage hyper, word. Is that a high percentage? I'm going <laughs> to tell you everything, right? <laughs> And look, think of what you can stick under this heading, things which have passed. Archaeology, that's anthropology, that's astronomy, right. history, right. things which have passed, hidden things which no man knew, 
things of the earth by which it was made and the purpose and the end thereof. And one of Stephen Covey's books, he talks about Albert Einstein being asked, um, if you could ask God anything, what would you ask him? And Albert Einstein said, well, I'd ask him how he made the universe. And then he changed his mind and said, no, wait, I would ask him why he created the universe, because then I would know the meaning of my life. And recently I found that uh, Stephen Hawking in our day said that, you know, science may one day be able to tell us how the universe was created, but it won't be able to tell us why does the universe bother to exist? Yeah. And we have beautiful answers here in, in the gospel. Anyway, things of the earth by which it was made, the purpose and the end thereof, things most precious, things that are above, things that are beneath, things that are in the earth and upon the earth and in heaven. And verse 36 really stuck out to me in that circumstance. Wherefore, fear not even unto death, for in this world your joy is not full, but in me your joy is full. And so those verses, for anyone that has questions of evolution, dinosaurs, anthropology, whatever, the Lord's saying, I will tell you everything. Hidden things which nobody knows right now, I will tell you everything. And it's kind of a move forward in faith. It's abide in my covenant. It's a continuing God type of a, a little section right there that I've always loved. Yeah, that is really that is really good. I remember calling you when when I got asked to speak at the youth conference for those students who went to Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. And I said, you've done this. Tell me what to do. <laughs> and you said, you won't sleep very well, right? You won't sleep very well when this... Uh, yeah, it was... Before it. It, well, it was pivotal because it taught me, do the scriptures have the answers or don't they? Uh, and and they do. That they we don't we don't we don't know why. And so instead, I focused on, but what do we know for sure? And and that was one of those. This is here's some things that we do know from a source where the answers don't change from from the the words of the Lord. So so I've always loved those verses. Thanks for letting yeah, me I, talk about those for a minute. I I really like those that. Your, your questions will get answered. Be patient. Yeah. They will get so answered. So abide in my covenant, you know, continue in God. Sherilyn, I bet as a historian, there's plenty of questions you would like answered. <laughs> Definitely. Definitely. That's one thing I, I thought about when I read over that verse. It's like, I'm going to find out what happened there and there and there. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, some intellectual, but a lot, you know, personal. Yeah. What, why did this or... What was yeah. going on? What was there? that all about? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, why did that happen? Yeah. Hey, but why also were we driven out of Missouri? He's like, I was pretty clear about that one. Yeah. Any any others before we wrap up here? I think one of the things, kind of going off what you said, I really liked what you just talked about, John. So thank you for that. You know, oftentimes we can hear stories of the Lord helping other people. Um, does God love me if this terrible thing happens? But really as much as we hear those stories and as much as they can help, it doesn't mean anything to us unless we have our own testimony and unless we feel that assurance and that witness from the spirit that God is still mindful of you. Even though this terrible thing happened or terrible things, multiple things happened and that it's when we come to know for ourselves that I think even though we can share comforting things with each other and share scriptures and that's what we should do, that in the end we have to, to receive that witness for ourselves and that's when we can find peace with it. That's when we can make peace with, with the terrible things happening in the world, with the, what did Elder Renlund call it? Infuriating unfairness. Infuriating unfairness. 
There's a there's a piece towards the end of the section I find interesting where the Lord says, do you remember the story I told in the Bible about the woman who went to the king and just kept praying and, and asking and asking and asking? And finally, he's like, I will answer your prayer just to get rid of you, right? He said, that's what I want you to do. I want you to importune the judges. I want you to importune the governor. I want you to importune the president. And then I found something so fascinating about verse 92. He says, if none of this has any any fruit, then the Lord's hot displeasure and fierce anger will come. And then verse 92, pray ye therefore that their ears may be opened unto your cries, that I may be merciful unto them, that these things may not come upon them. That's an interesting thing. That's an interesting version of pray for your enemies um, because you don't want the Lord's judgment to come upon them. So pray that they hear you. Uh, that's an interesting moment where uh, it's almost the Lord is saying, oh, pray for them because uh, the, 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 what is it? The judgments are coming and they won't like them. Yeah. And I, I don't think I'm there. I might've been an, uh, no, no, let them have it, Lord. Let them really, <laughs> I want to see that hot displeasure thing. Really yeah. let them have it. Yeah. He's saying work your hardest and hope that they listen because if they don't, um, mm. hot displeasure will come. Joseph Smith said, come to God and weary him until he blesses you. And they always thought that, that the judge says, lest she weary me by her continual coming. And Joseph Smith said, yeah, weary the Lord until he blesses you. Keep asking. I think my children have read this parable. <laughs> Keep asking until they give in, right? Come to God. What did you say there, John? Come to God and weary him. And weary him until he blesses you. From the words of Joseph Smith, page 15. Almost Dr. Sherilyn Farnes. Um, doctor in a year. It's obvious that you have studied these, um, these, this history in depth. Um, especially uh, Edward and Lydia Partridge and their family. Uh, and you, you obviously have a great love for these people. So I think our listeners would love to know in all of your research, uh, what do you love about the restoration? How do you feel uh, about Joseph Smith and um, his uh, contemporaries? That's a great question. I think what stands out to me most is how human the early saints were, because in understanding how human they were, it helps me understand how much they relied on the Savior. That we oftentimes, we put them on a pedestal, as it were, Elder Maxwell says, and we dry all their tears off of them and we say, here's these saints that were perfect. Um, and they weren't perfect. And they didn't wake up every morning singing, come, come ye saints, when they crossed the plains. Sometimes they woke up grumpy. <laughs> Sometimes they were really annoyed. Um, there's a great story about uh, Newell K. Whitney when he's crossing the plains and uh, the night guard wakes up. They wake up a gentleman and they're like, hey, we hear a mule and it's choking and we can't find it. Can you help us find it? And they're like looking for this choking mule. And finally they realize, oh, it's actually Bishop Newell K. Whitney snoring. <laughs> like he sounds like a choking mule. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we laugh <laughs> and you think, uh, but like, what is real life for the saints? You know, I just picture this, this, this uh, sister pulling in on their covered wagon and looking over and she's like, honey, you parked by Newell K. Whitney, you know, or N.K. Whitney as he was called. Why did you park by the Whitney's? He's going to snore all night. I really need sleep. I've been up the past two nights with the baby. I need to sleep. And the husband's like, I can't move now. They already saw that we pulled in. We can't like go park somewhere else with our wagon. <laughs> you know, that this is we'll real life that these saints, you know, are having to deal with each other. It's like being on a road trip. 
for months at a time. You're in close quarters with these people. And yet what I love is like Eliza Partridge says, she says, there's so many times in my life I felt like there was no other hope. But then she says, there is sure to come a ray of light that always there is light. Like Edward Partridge, her father said that there's light bursting forth with starting with the reformers and then continuing exponentially with the restoration. Um, that it's because these people weren't perfect, but they had faith. That's what I take comfort from. And specifically Joseph Smith led them. That Joseph Smith, as someone said of Gordon B. Hinckley, he was no more than a man, but he was no less than a prophet. And that seeing the Lord work with Joseph and work with these saints and recognizing that they're not perfect, it gives me hope that the Lord can work with me, that maybe as imperfect and flawed as I am, the Lord can somehow use me in some way to help build his kingdom, to help build Zion. It will be hard, right? We'll be chastened. We'll be chastened, the Lord says, like Abraham. And there's a lot of things that we won't understand, but that's the point of walking by faith is that we trust in the Lord and that we move forward even if we can't see the end from the beginning, even if like Ether, or excuse me, like the brother of Jared, um, when the Lord says, there will I meet thee, that we do the steps that we can, and then he meets us there. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Um, John, we've been very blessed today. Yeah, every time we go through one of these, and I think I've read it, and, and now I'm seeing things in new ways. So right. thank you so much, Sherilyn, for your time, your devotion to this topic, and for sharing these some of your favorite uh, things with us today. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you for having me. I feel very blessed and uplifted and edified by our discussion. So thank you. And I've enjoyed your previous podcasts as well. So thank you for what you're both doing to, to share and increase the light in the world. I just get to listen mostly. I love it. <laughs> yeah, me too. I just have been so blessed today. Yeah, I like what John said, these, these sections will mean will just be different uh, for me for, from now on because of all you've shared. We want to thank, of course, Sherilyn Farns, and we want to <laughs> thank all of you for listening and staying with us. We're grateful for your support. We could not do this without listeners, right, John? Uh, if nobody listened, yeah. we would, uh, this would, we'd close up shop. So thank you. And thank you for sharing with your friends and family. Uh, we, of course, want to thank our executive producers, the wonderful Steve and Shannon Sorensen. We have a production crew that does a ton of work. Uh, we want to mention them, Lisa Spice, David Perry, Jamie Nielsen, Will Stoughton, Maria Hilton, and Kyle Nelson. Thank you to you. We love you all. And we hope to see you next time on the next episode of Follow Him. Follow Him.